Look at the front cover at the top of your order of service. You'll see that our logo here at UUCF emphasizes three core values, spirituality, community, and justice. We had a similar tagline at a congregation I served previously in Northeast Louisiana. It was, do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly. That previous congregation was on the corner of a busy uh, intersection, and I remember the day that we put up a a new sign that uh, had that logo. And a group of us were admiring that sign up close, and I remember feeling pretty good about our decision to proclaim our values publicly. I mean, what's not to like? Justice, mercy, humility? Eh, mostly. Uh, But then the founding member of the congregation turned her head a little sideways, and she squinted her eyes and said in a skeptical voice, you know, I'm not sure that everyone who drives by this sign is going to understand our intent. She said, I I know what we mean by do justice. We mean feeding the hungry and giving drink to the thirsty and clothing the naked and sheltering the homeless and visiting the sick and imprisoned. But she said, This is Northeast Louisiana. I've I've lived here my whole life, and there's a lot of folks around these parts that they see those words do justice. They think Clint Eastwood. They think getting revenge. I took a step back and said, you know, you may be right. Uh, Some people may take away that impression, but my hope is they drive slow enough that, you know, that love mercy and that walk humbly will help contextualize the sort of justice that we have in mind. I think about that experience sometimes and I reflect on our goal here at UUCF to act for peace and justice or even our much um, broader UU6 principle with that huge goal of world community with peace, liberty, and justice for all. Here's the thing about big words like community and peace and justice and liberty. They mean different things to different people. And I don't mean to be flippant or insensitive when I say that there's a lot of truth in that old saying that one person's terrorist is another person's freedom fighter. So much depends on your point of view. When speaking of justice, philosophers have classically made a distinction between distributive justice and retributive justice. Distributive justice is concerned about uh, redistribution, making sure that food and water and shelter and safety and security, those are all divided up so that everyone at least has their basic needs met. And retributive justice is concerned with revenge, with making right some injustice, some wrong. Consider, for instance, these dueling rallies I was speaking about earlier that are happening in downtown Frederick this afternoon. That rally at the Baker Park Amphitheater is in many ways about retributive justice. It's about revenge on individuals who are perceived as having broken current uh, immigration laws. The rally at the amphitheater wants redistributive justice to change the system, the causes and conditions that created undocumented um, workers in the first place. Based on that view, an unjust law is no law at all. But notice that that justice is higher law thing, that actually cuts both ways. There are people on the retributive justice side that would create vigilantes, right? That would be to say, I'm going to take justice into my own hands. There's some rule, there's some law protecting a powerful individual that I'm going to get them anyway. Uh, So 
Again, it all just depends. And I want to invite us to think some this morning about what do people deserve? What do they need? What's fair? And crucially, who decides, right? It matters, for instance, who's in the room when decisions about justice is made. There's that classic slogan from the disability rights movement of nothing about us without us. There was this persistent um, sense from people who were living with disabilities of, that they had of paternalism, of people trying to tell them what was best for them as opposed to having them as part of the conversation. There's a related proverb that if you're not at the table, you may be on the menu. Along these lines, one of my touchstones for considering the questions of what's fair and who decides is by the American political philosopher John Rawls. It's a book titled, A Theory of Justice. So it's his stab at this whole what's fair, who decides thing. And one of the biggest takeaways from his book is a thought experiment that can really be paradigm shifting for someone, especially someone coming from a lot of privilege. Uh, Rawls invites us to imagine that we are behind what is called a veil of ignorance. Now, it may seem to you that some people seem to always be behind this veil of ignorance, but stay with me. Uh, For behind this veil of ignorance, you don't know the advantages or disadvantages that you will have in society. You don't know your gender, your class, your race, your sexual orientation, your ability, your religion. And from this so-called original position in Rawls' language, you must choose the principles of justice that will structure the society that you and those you care about will live in. Now, maybe you're a gambler. Maybe you want to play the odds and uh, create an unequal society in the hope that you'll get you know, a, a prime plum position when the veil is lifted and the, it's revealed what traits you have and what traits society advantages and disadvantages. But Rawls assumes that the rational choice for most people in such a position would be to structure society in such a way that maybe it's not totally equal, but that no matter what happens to you, even the most vulnerable among us will at least have a sturdy floor beneath which they can't sink any lower to have a dignified life, to have at least their basic needs met. And so this Rawls's theory of justice challenges us to then create that world here in reality, to fight for the same accommodations and dignity for others that we would want for ourselves and for those we love, no matter what the world. And as significant and helpful as I find this perspective, it's worth considering that some of these contemporary ways that we've come to think about justice are actually of relatively recent origin. Uh, You actually don't get a book with the title Social Justice, so a lot of UUs, we're talking about social justice all the time. The first book with that in the title was from 1900, barely more than a century ago. Uh, Far more recent still do we get um, this term global justice. It's really the last decades of the 20th century, really after people went to the moon and saw the earth and started to get this global sense, and, uh, and we'll talk more about that in a few weeks. Uh, they got this sense of our globalized, pluralistic, postmodern world. Uh, so scale is another really significant thing that's changed. So a lot more people talking about social justice in the last more than a century, and a lot more people thinking about the scale of how do we do justice, not for our community, but for 7.6 billion people and rising. So the risk of oversimplifying, when we talk about social justice or global justice, a a crude definition of what we mean is just how the good and bad things in life are dealt out. 
That's really what we're talking about. Who gets the advantages? Who gets the burdens? What's fair and who decides? It's even trickier because one person's advantage is like another person's disadvantage, right? So some people, because we're different. To start with a negative example, I'm aware that there's both much to be proud of in our Unitarian Universalist heritage and also times that we should be honest about how the elite social location of some of our forebears impacted their work for justice. So you have folks like Ralph Waldo Emerson, for, on one hand, who did great work for abolition. On the other hand, he wrote essays like Self-Reliance that has actually some really great stuff in it, as well as some cringeworthy stuff in it. Uh, Emerson writes, for example, do not tell me as a good man did today of my obligation to put all poor men in good situations. Are they my poor? He asked. I tell thee, thou foolish philanthropist, that I grudge the dollar, the dime, even the cent that I give to such men as do not belong to me and to whom I do not belong. And then he lists a bunch of charities that he hates. Uh, and then continues, though I confess with shame, I sometimes succumb and give the dollar, but it is a wicked dollar, which by and large I shall have the manhood to withhold. Whew, makes me want to say, dude, Emerson, it's not a good look, man. Don't hit send on that. Uh, Methinks your privilege is showing. And by privilege, I mean something at the intersection of our English word privilege and advantage and entitlement. We're talking about something at the intersection of those words that can inhibit someone from understanding the lived reality of someone in a position that that society disadvantages. Or I sometimes invite people to consider that sexism, for example, it is, I think you will not be surprised to hear, easier for women to notice than for men, right? Because literally women are stumbling over sexist things, right? So it's, it's easier to see the, th the ways in which you're not privileged and harder to see the ways in which you are. We could say the same thing about, you know, I grew up in South Carolina. My high school was 50% black. I was totally oblivious to this whole driving while black thing that you could get pulled over, you know, until like college. And so it, it was just not something I stumbled over, whereas I would suspect the members of my the African-American members of my high school were much more aware of that. At the same time, I'll readily grant that what social justice and global justice call for is far beyond uh, what any individual does or doesn't do. We are called to change the systems, the structures, the institutions that help ensure that everyone has at least their basic needs met. To say more about that, if you'll open your orders of service, you should have a white piece of paper in there that has um, some cartoons on it. Uh, and setting aside the unfortunate choice, at least to my mind, to make this whole thing about access to baseball games, which means nothing to me, uh, and not the least of which reason that the final panel in the bottom right-hand corner sets up the people to be like hit by a baseball, just set all that aside because I think it's still a really helpful visual aid. Stay with me. Uh, panel one, equality, shows why treating everyone the same is often inadequate. We're not all the same. Giving everyone a box to stand on, that is 100% perfect for the person in the middle. But the person on the left, that person doesn't need a box. And the person on the right, even while standing on the box, is still staring at the fence. So this idea of you get a box and you get a box and you get a box, it doesn't always work. So go with me to panel two on equity. It's a strategy of giving everyone not the same, but giving people what they need. 
Uh, that's also reflected if you look in the bottom cartoon with the bicycles, that's also about equity, giving people not the same, but what they need. In Marx's language, from each according to their ability or resources to each according to their socially recognized needs. Note that in the second panel, there are actually still three boxes total, but the tall person's box on the left has been redistributed, go social justice, to the now joyous person on the right who can now see over the fence who needed two boxes, and that other person didn't need a box at all. Uh, panel three, reality, is a reminder of our current state of extreme wealth inequality in which the person on the left has absurdly, dangerously too many boxes. They could fall right off that stack of boxes onto my pitchfork, right? <laughs> and the person on the right is demoralizingly in a hole. Now, I've previously addressed wealth inequality at least. I'll give us just one data point for right now. In the United States today, the bottom 90%, so about 145 million families who possess approximately $94,000 on average of wealth, collectively own about the collective total household wealth as, so this is 145 million, the same as 161,000 people whose average wealth is about $82 million. 845 times larger. And that top 0.1% is about as large as the income share of the top 1%. So it's that just wildly, so I'm not arguing for egalitarianism, but just notice when we get these wildly disproportionate um, inequalities that corrupts any chance of a, of a fair playing field and is arguably dangerous for um, everyone involved. Uh, panel four is liberation. It challenges us, what happens if we just take down the wall, if we radically change the system, the institution structure uh, that's holding people back in the first place? So although this cartoon isn't perfect, of course, nothing is, you're saved from perfection, right? I invite you to use this as a tool to reflect on the ways you might shift the reality in the places where you have spheres of influence toward more equity or maybe even toward collective liberation in which we all get free. I'll give you a personal example. This summer while we were in Scotland, my wife broke her arm and we happened to be on the isolated um, island of Iona at the time. So after a six um, plus hour journey of taking a short ferry ride to the island of Mull, a bus across Mull that was slightly longer, another ferry ride to the mainland of Scotland, and then a much longer train ride to Edinburgh, we took a cab to the emergency room. That's all another story. Uh, my point for now is that when we walked into the A&E, the Accidents and Emergency Department, as they call it, we were asked only a few simple questions, though we were not citizens of Scotland. There were not many pages of paperwork, as we seem to complete every time we go to the same doctor here in the U.S. Uh, and after waiting a while, they did x-rays and they put Megan's arm in a cast as we prepared to leave. I, I knew we, we had, this had to get done, right? So I was just like, we just needed to get this done. I asked the elephant in the room question of how much do we owe you? To which they said, nothing. We probably even won't, won't even put this in our records. Her arm was broken, so we fixed it. That's a version of liberation, just boom. We're just going to remove the barrier that keeps people from getting the treatment they need. If you need help, we'll give it to you. 
Uh, to me, it's related to the reason that we have a, a sign on Highway 15 that doesn't say all lives matter. It says black lives matter. Of course, we believe all lives matter, too. It's in our first principle, the inherent dignity and worth of every human being. Uh, but the reason we have a Black Lives Matter banner is that, you know, my wife didn't come out of that Scot Scottish a um, a and E with a full body cast, right? It was her arm that was broken, right? You don't, but all bones matter, so we're going to put you in a full body cast, right? No. We have to pay particular attention to the things that are particularly broken in our society. If you haven't been paying attention to the 1619 project that the New York Times has been doing, I uh, recommend it to you. They've been on this 400th anniversary of the first enslaved human beings being brought to this country. They've been reflecting on that. It's worth paying attention to, or I sometimes think, you, you wouldn't go to a Susan G. Komen breast cancer fundraiser and chant, all cancers matter. All, of course all cancers matter, but this is a Susan G. Komen fundraiser, right? Anyway, you're welcome, Susan G. Komen. Um, I've also been heartened recently to hear more interest in what are called certified B corporations, which are legally required to consider the impact of, on, of their decisions on their workers, on their customers, on their suppliers, on their community, on the environment. To which I want to ask, why is that an unusual thing? <laughs> Right? To undergo a you have to, to be a B Corp, you have to undergo a rigorous measurement of your environmental and social and government um, impact and take social justice into account and how you relate to your community. But this is really starkly contrasted that traditionally in this country, the only thing you should legally be doing as a corporation is increasing shareholder value. Nothing else matters. People don't matter, the environment doesn't matter. To which I want to say, hmm. Maybe we've been doing this wrong. You know, like maybe every corporation should have to be a B corporation. But at least we could start with raising awareness of B corporations and how that works in the world. We must demand a better world, not only for ourselves, but for the generations to come. Last week I shared with you Martin Buber's powerful words when Hitler came to power in Germany that the world has become unreliable and we must make the world reliable again for children. And perhaps a way to start to do that can sometimes be as simple as actually just doing the things that we tell our children to do. Recently, I had the opportunity to officiate at a wedding in which the couple chose an unusual reading that was actually more powerful than I anticipated. Uh, a lot of weddings, as you can probably, I do, I go to a lot of weddings, uh, choose pretty standard readings, and that's fine. They're classics for a reason, but it stands out when people choose different readings that are unique to them. And I often, in that case, will encourage them during the ceremony to not underestimate the intuitive leap that led them to choose that particular reading for themselves and to set it in their calendar even to revisit that reading, you know, on your fifth anniversary or tenth anniversary or even annually to remind yourself of the intentions that you set on that day. In this case, they chose a reading by the author Robert Fulgham, who incidentally is a Unitarian Universalist minister. He graduated in 1961 from Star King School for the Ministry, that's our UU Identity Seminary on the West Coast, and is the Minister Emeritus of our congregation in Edmonds, Washington. The couple chose his most famous essay, All I Really Needed to Know, I Learned in Kindergarten. That's right. It could be dismissed as childish, but it actually is a profound reminder for cultivating a life well-lived, a healthy marriage, and even I invite you to consider a more socially just world. 
As I read this brief essay to you, I invite you to notice if one or more of these core values that we wish for our children, you might need to be reminded of, or someone in your life, or even maybe a politician that you know of as they write or vote on upcoming legislation. Fulgham says, share everything, play fair. Don't hit people, put things back where you found them, clean up your own mess, don't take things that aren't yours. How did our oil get under their sand, right? Say you're sorry when you hurt somebody. This is important, it's getting to be winter. Wash your hands before you eat, right? Flush. <laughs> Warm cookies and cold milk are good for you. Live a balanced life. Every day learn some and think some. Draw and paint and sing and dance some. Play and work every day some. Take a nap every afternoon. When you go out into the world, watch out for traffic. Hold hands and stick together. And be aware of wonder. I'm grateful to be with you on this journey to create such a world. Together, may we turn our dreams into deeds.